how are you how are you doing whatever we yeah, we were just talking about how it's like hard to know what question to ask exactly you know yeah uh you know i don't know it's like 2020 is the trash can that just keeps on overflowing <laughs> no bottom to it right <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think trash is actually coming out of the bottom, <laughs> up over the top of the rim. Even though there's also a hole somehow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So. Like Just when you hole. thought it couldn't get worse. Yeah. What is that thing in Buffy? That is it like the hell hell the what hell mouth hell mouth. Hell right. mouth. <laughs> That's like a temporal hell mouth, right? Welcome to a special episode of The Drip. It is our 25th episode. Yeah, we don't really have an audience ever, but if you had an audience, imagine them all popping. <laughs> I can put a laugh track in here. So there uh, you go. Applause track, I can put that in there. I said there a laugh track, that would be bad. I feel like that's what like some of the podcasts do. Let's, let's 25th about. anniversary. <laughs> so y'all should know by now, but this is a podcast where four academ academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to broader conversations about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes and when we are still in our own homes, in our PJs or our sweatpants, because we are still trying to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and even people we don't like safe and healthy. And we want to send our love, support, and gratitude to everyone who is still out on the streets demanding justice so we can all live and breathe more freely. And rest in peace, Chester Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach at the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. And given everything that's been happening, I just wanted to say I'm like a light brown-skinned woman, and in some contexts that can be sort of ambiguously brown. But I am from India, South India, and as far as I know, my family, as far as back as great, great uh, grandparents, were all supported in India from there. So just wanted to clarify that and you know confirm that. So Todd, <laughs> <laughs> you're up next. <laughs> my name is Todd Lawrence. I teach African <laughs> literature and culture, folklore, and cultural studies at the University of Saint Thomas. I am also a little bit light skinned, but I'm definitely a black person. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. Just confirming that as well. All right, Crystal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Crystal Moten. And I'm black, 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 and black. <laughs> I teach. No, I don't teach. We're <laughs> losing it. <laughs> I, I do public history at a museum and I focus on black people because I'm black, black, black. <laughs> Best intros ever. All right, Adriana. I teach at Carleton College and I am not black. <laughs> 
now that we have I, that all uh, well no anita i do feel like i have to make a statement though yeah, you okay do. go for it go as for it. as a white latina a latina who is very 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 white <laughs> like i am white enough to sunburn and i get freckles um, I just want to assure all of you that I have family in Mexico and that family goes back quite a way there too. So when I speak in Spanish, I'm not just fretting. <laughs> it's a real thing. And I can confirm having been to Mexico and having met Adriana's family that she's not lying. So Shouldn't we, we have done this on our first episode? <laughs> I don't think we like thought about it. Just I'm just saying some recent events. Just you I mean, know, brought it just, up for me. So, yeah, I got you. Yeah. I got you. Yeah, I'm glad we did Our, that though. Now everybody can know the truth. Exactly. You know who we are. We right. do mean it when we're for academics of color. <clears throat> so today we are discussing the March trilogy, co-written by Representative John Lewis and Andrew Aiden, and illustrated by Nate Powell. Representative Lewis, uh, a civil rights icon, was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from the Georgia's 5th District in 1986, and he continued to serve in that capacity till his death this past July. Andrew Aiden served as Digital Director and Policy Advisor in the D.C. Office of Representative Lewis, and Nate Powell is a New York Times bestseller graphic novelist. So the first book in the trilogy was published in 2013, the second in 2015, and the third in 2016. So this is usually the place where I would do my whole like, you know, we're all about the spoilers and not summaries. But given that this is like a book about history, if any of you are mad about anything we give away, it's totally <laughs> your fault. So, you know, just saying. All right. So, <laughs> right, Crystal? Like, people should know their history. So, <laughs> so um, I wanted to start off by kind of asking maybe like the obvious question, right? Because the book sort of frames, uh, all three books, right, are kind of framed around President Obama's 2009 uh, inauguration, right, kind of starts us off there, and it kind of comes back to that kind of over the course of the book. So just curious about kind of what you thought about that more generally, and also just to kind of maybe get at it more specifically, that we could look at like a section in book two where it's kind of the only place where there's like images and words that are um, actually juxtaposed on the same page between the 1960s and 2009. So, but yeah, but just first kind of what folks thought of that and whether we think that that's like kind of um, conceding to kind of this like history as progress narrative. I can, I can just begin with the kind of briefest of comments as I continue to think through that question. But I think kind of framing um, this trilogy it, with the uh, inauguration, inauguration of President Obama kind of in and throughout, it really marks this book for me, these books for me as a product of their times. And especially kind of the sense that there were, there were these high expectations of how President Obama's um, presidency, his administration would kind of speak to and through and with kind of some of the dreams and goals of the civil rights movement. And I really saw kind of that um, that kind of idea kind of permeating throughout. But then also what I was thinking about, um, especially as I thought of John Lewis's career as an activist and his, um, you know, his work in the 60s, how meaningful it was that President Obama, and meaningful for every, you know, yeah. for all of us that President Obama was elected, but especially for that generation and for, mm. uh, and so I was thinking about that as I was also thinking about, hmm, framing this, framing this set of work with, with that, that event. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have chose it. But I could understand why it was done that way. But so, that, yeah, those are some of my initial Yeah, thoughts. I think 
<clears throat> I really agree with what you're saying. I mean, um, when I think back to, you know, the election night and the inauguration, I mean, I really understand the power of that moment. And I was crying and my parents were calling me and, you know, I think I was, I think, uh, you know, we had friends, everybody was like at our house, you know, it was back in the day when you could expect the, the election to be called that night, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, and so, yeah, so it, it had this really um, sort of power to it. But also, I think, I don't know, there's a sense of, um, of it as a kind of symbolic thing that mm-hmm. we sort of came to understand as being as having less power than we imagined it would and you know i'm always still sort of shocked when um i'm listening to some news you know piece or something and they're like and this county voted for obama and then it voted for trump you know and i'm like how did that happen you know and of course there are lots of ways to explain that but i think you know that speaks to um, that what you just said, Crystal, you know, that kind of like expectation, like that this, this person is the person who's going to bring in the change and is going to, um, is going to like absolve people of the sins that they've committed and like all this, like just sort of freighted with so much stuff that he couldn't possibly carry, especially when he had like so many people who were set to make sure he couldn't do anything. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm like you, I completely understand why um, John Lewis would use this as a kind of this sort of point of aspiration of his book or where everything was headed towards that he was working for. Um, But I think, you know, if you asked him, I mean, I'm just totally guessing, but I have to think that if you asked him, you know, last year or before he died, I mean, he was definitely like he went to see Black Lives Matter Square right before he died, right? Because he knew that there was still more work to do, a lot more work to do, right? And so I think, you know, we can't, we don't want to sort of impose on the book just because they chose to do it this way at the time that they wrote it, that he thought that that was, you know, the end all be all or something. Um, Crystal, like what you said about the, like it being like a particular generation of folks, right? Who sort sort of saw Obama as sort of a symbol of something was interesting. And I was thinking about like the difference between, seeing Obama as the change versus like seeing Obama as like a potential um, avenue for change, right? Kind of like both of those, like, I think there's like, are two different things and I'm kind of thinking about, right? In some ways, I feel like the white narrative perhaps is like, Obama was the change, right? And I feel like for other folks, it was kind of like Obama could bring more change and maybe we were like disappointed in how much he couldn't or like, which speaks to kind of our larger system, right? That like one person in some ways like, could have a lot of impact, which I think is also interesting because I feel like the focus on like Kennedy and Johnson and the books in the books I think are kind of interesting to think about, right? Just for the impact that they had. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm just thinking about that. Yeah, I was gonna say that's an interesting distinction because I mean, again, like I guess I can put myself more back into that you know moment in 2009 too. That you know Obama's win, it it was like okay, we have this is we've gotten somewhere. You know, for the ability for um, you know a black man to be elected president of the United States, that 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 meant something happened between you know 1965 and 2008, and we can't deny that. Um, but whether or not that meant something happened for one person or for a group of people, mm-hmm. you know, is right. what we uncover and grapple with. And maybe not uncover because I think there were always people who were like, oh, no, this is not, you know, him winning is not the, you know, be all end all. But there just seemed to be such meaning and possibility in um, his election. And not only, you know, and not only in 
a Barack Obama's election, but what it meant to have a black family in the White House. So like Michelle and uh, Grandma LaVon and, you know, Malia and Sasha, that all was like, whoa, something mm-hmm. happened here, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. were... I think beyond all of that, which I think like are really terrific points about kind of the limitations of this framing as a historical, um, as a comment on history, right, or a progress. There's something about the narrative framing that I think is just kind of clumsy too. Um, there's a way in which when it starts out, you know, you get the little kids and the mother mm-hmm. asking questions, which makes for a pretty natural way for John Lewis to then go into his memories and start to tell a story. But at some point, like it's just they're rushing to the inauguration and suddenly this, the story keeps on popping up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by the end, so like that's I think not that's even what, in books two and three. I exactly. mean, they're gone, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah no, it just frustrated yeah. me, right? The way in which the inauguration um, is then left uh, kind of unexamined as this larger kind of um, thing that is holding it all together. Meanwhile, right, the books themselves, um, I mean, I think for those of us who know the history but have never really studied the history, you know, so like everyone here except Crystal maybe, um, <laughs> like what, what, what was really impressive is that like you get into it and especially because they're graphic novels, it takes a long time. Like these years are long and the mm-hmm. actions are long and the organizing is long and the groups mm-hmm. are big and the, you know, like it, it, it is involved, which I mm-hmm. knew intellectually, mm-hmm. but like, I think these books did a really good job of, of um, conveying the kind of challenges of um, getting that many people mm-hmm. uh, to different places, um, especially with the um, challenge of moving around in the South in the early 60s. And I think I actually didn't know what the books were about clearly because I didn't realize that it basically is like a lead up to like the March in Selma, right? It ends with like the March in Selma in some ways in terms of the 60s story. And I don't think I knew that. So sort of like, I thought it would like, I mean, it sort of starts with that, but I was like, so I I, I agree. Like, I think it was like really, like I knew some of it and I, you know, whatever. Um, So I don't know, Crystal, if you had to jump in, but I also wanted us to take a look at those pages when we get a chance to think about that juxtaposition. Oh, no, you can take us there. Can I, can I say something before you go there? I mean, this is um, just to piggyback on what Adriana said. I think, you know, when you, the one thing that I think the book does a really good job, but I mean, or the books, but it would be like, you really need a, an, an encyclopedia of um, graphic novels to tell the whole story of the civil rights movement. And it strikes me that, you know, most people, the sort of popular kind of understanding of the civil rights movement is extremely shallow. Um, and doesn't include so many people who we're, um, who your the readers introduced to in the, in these books. And so I think like, I really have to give like, even though I have to keep in mind, this is John Lewis's story. So it's a particular re- um, kind of representation or narrative of what happened. Um, it is a really great kind of broad introduction to the movement yeah. in the sense of all the people who are brought into it, who are talked about. The organizations. The organizations. Yeah. Exactly, the organizations, right? And to yeah. get a sense of the tensions between the organizations. Yeah. Right. You know, again, like, I, you know, before we started, Todd, you were talking about, like, the way this still maps onto um, uh, social organizing and protests right now, right? That there are still these tensions about, like, what are the right actions to take? What strategies are too radical and... Um, will instead, you know, make uh, the people who are protesting seem like they are lesser citizens or too revolutionary or communist, right? And all of that is already here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Before you take us there, Anita, I'll, I'll yeah. just say, can you hear me? 
Yep. Yep. I was just going to say this one thing um, that I was just happy that I had two decades worth of years of studying the civil rights movement because as all these people and organizations were coming up, it wasn't like, oh, I have to remember all of these things yeah. I, you know, because I've been studying them. But I did feel bad for people who this was their, would be their first encounter because there is a long list of people you need to be able to yeah. Along with the organizations, and then because this is kind of you know, John Lewis was everywhere in the South, right? You had to yes. keep track of where things were happening. Yes. So bad for people who are not historians, but anyway. No, <laughs> I was super impressed. I was like, yeah. he was at all the like big things, like the lunch counters and the theaters and the swimming pools, and the freedom rides, we, and I was just like, you could oh take, my gosh. you could take any one of those sort of like if if you divide it up into like yeah. these sort of uh, segments where whether it's the sit-ins or or um, Birmingham campaign or whatever take any one of those and make it a whole sort of three books on that right yeah. Yeah. and so yeah. to, i think he does a as good a job as could be expected yeah. to kind of put them into one thing but it is like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hose i mean mm-hmm. it's just coming at you a mm-hmm. hundred miles an hour and, and he was uh, in his early 20s he was a yeah. he was a baby i'm yeah. like this man just like you know so massive. And, and he's like everywhere like you said crystal yeah. he's everywhere i'm like I think it, I think there's one time where he mentions like this was the first time I was at my apartment in like three years. Yes, or yes, so yes. He's just constantly on a plane or on a bus or in a car going from city yeah. to city to city. It's just extraordinary. In the yeah. whole three books, there's that one section where he talks about. So you know, some people talk about like you know, like there was just no time for love, but like there was you know, sex in the movement. Like. <laughs> to talk about that but let me tell you about the one time i danced with shirley mcclay i know (laughs) that's pretty random (laughs) and i have to say like if i was if i ever had the chance to you know write my own three volume graphic novel i might you know slip something in like that that was you've had a like the time that i danced with beyonce at a party Um, and everybody really was saying, Todd? hey, was Todd, like, you really could have gotten with Beyonce that night, but, you Like, know. all I know is Todd went to a concert that was, like, had to be delayed because of lightning in terms yeah. of a Beyonce concert. I'm uh, pretty sure that's the closest I you've gotten, but I don't know. Just a little bit, <laughs> he was a little bit, like, didn't want to come out and, and uh-huh. perform. So. <laughs> You're like, you could write about that. Yeah. Uh, a all right. bit of anxiety. <laughs> um, <laughs> because this is a graphic novel, I thought it'd be interesting to just, like, take a look at the graphic, like, language. Is that the right term? Um, I should I remember I should have remembered from uh, our last graphic novel, but okay. So seventy eight to like eighty two. So kind of so we're in the story in the sixties, which is in Montgomery, and they're doing one of the freedom rides, and they get to a bus station in Montgomery, and basically the riders um, are confronted by a white mob. And that's like from uh, seventy. Two, and you kind of you know keeps going, and then there's like a federal agent who also gets hit. I guess it was there to like try to protect the writers. Um, but then on 79, so it's kind of starts, there's like a picture of a Greyhound, the Greyhound bus station, but then the lyrics of My Country to Sophie, which when you flip to the next page, you realize that it's Aretha Franklin singing it at Obama's inauguration. And then that sort of set of pages has images from the inauguration and Aretha kind of in the foreground. And then there's like a bunch of small images from the 60s so just curious about how you all read these pages and i want adriana you sort of use the term sort of like clumsy in terms of that juxtaposition so i was curious about if you thought this was like a clumsy way or if you thought this was like effective Ooh, putting me on the spot <laughs> or anybody else but you just you just said that so i was kind of curious about what you thought 
I mean, I guess I like this page better than some of the other, mo like the kind of like attempt to use it as a wrap, right? Mm. But the, the juxtaposition, I think, is um, it, in some way, I've been telling my students, right, in our literature class, Latinx Voices in the Age of Trump, that there's, um, a, you know, we as readers bring these different things to text, right? And we in 2020, and especially, oh my gosh, in the trash dumpster fire that is 2020, right? Like <laughs> this um, set of pages, I think we're gonna read it really differently than maybe someone in 20, early 2016 might've. Um, so that um, for me, like right now, I can't help but see the artist's use of those inset images as a kind of like the history is still there. Um, and maybe that means it's not as buried or as in the past mm. as the inauguration of Obama made it feel like at the time. Yeah, and I, I just, I kind of agree with that. I, I wanted to point out that the, so it's like a banner with uh, my country to mm -hmm. the lyrics that goes from the page, what is it, 79, and then onto this double, you know, this double image page, uh, image on two pages, and then onto 82, it still goes out and there's a hand extended, which is throwing a Molotov cocktail at uh, Ralph Abernathy's church, I think that is, mm -hmm. in Montgomery, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it is, I think you're right. I mean, I think it, the, this is an attempt to sort of connect the two moments, the, the movement and this present moment of hope in anticipation of something better but to also say like, this is, this is the, the foundation, right? These, these are the things that people were fighting against. These are things that actually happened. And then when we go back to the movement, we go back to this, both a really scary moment and a moment when the church is full of people who are fighting, right? Mm -hmm. Full of people who are, one, who are gonna stand up, right? So I think it's, it's trying to do that. I mean, whether or not it's successful and maybe because I think we point this out as maybe one place in all three, um, all three volumes where this kind of thing happens this explicitly and maybe this successfully. Um, maybe we we're sort of wanting more of it, more of that kind of crossover, which you can do in a graphic novel in ways that you mm -hmm. couldn't do, you know, just in a written narrative. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it does, the fact that it's a graphic novel allows it to do a lot of things that are really interesting and maybe some things that are problematic. I mean, Mm -hmm. You can do, you can sort of tap into people's kind of knowledge of the language of the, of the comic, right? So when we have villains, you know, they, I'm thinking of just, just a little bit before that on page 75, there's this image in the, so towards the middle of the page of a white guy who's part of the mob that's beating people. It mm -hmm. clearly is, is sort of using the kind of cues of this is the villain, right? The missing mm -hmm. and this the sunken eyes and that kind of like mm -hmm. really um, weird kind of cowlick hair in the front, you know, like mm. it's very much, so it can do things like that, which mark people um, in very specific ways, the hero, the villain, the person who needs to be saved, you know, the victim or whatever. Um, the way that the cells are kind of like diagonal instead of perfectly square and how, how they often break into a full page with like inset cells and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think yeah. that's really interesting. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you know, we were talking before and Crystal was saying yeah, was how Crystal she wasn't about sure about the representation of the violence, for, for example. Yeah. Um, Can what, you say more? Oh, sorry. Yeah, do more, say more about that. Yeah. 
Well, I think the more that I wanted to say was just, you know, more of a question in terms of in some of the, and of course I can't find any to point to now, but in some of the representations of some of the violent violence as, you know, committed by, you know, white supremacists, it's really hard to actually see what is going on. And so mm-hmm. I was wondering, was that, was that a censoring that was mm-hmm. happening? depending on, you know, who perhaps the audience is for this book, if it's for young people and, you know, and for school age children, maybe be as a parent. Um, but then, you know, some of the, the viol- you know, some of the impact of the violence is very clear. And so mm-hmm. I was kind of wondering, um, wondering about that um, and thinking about this, this, this story as a graphic novel what does the genre of graphic graphic novel, you know, both illuminate and conceal about mm-hmm. kind of the reality of the civil rights story? Um, so maybe one throughout. Go ahead. Sorry. So maybe one example, Crystal, is still in book two, uh, page okay. forty-three. So he says, um, "My group never made it to Birmingham." And at the next page. It's implied that I guess the book was uh, the book. Sorry, the bus was um, firebomb, but then you don't. It like mm-hmm. yeah, so it's, you know, because it's like kind of clear, but not really. Mm-hmm. Do you see it? Uh, so it's yeah. like. I mean, but, that- but the but the time we get to page forty four and forty five, it's totally clear. But you're right; it's not in the action; it's the aftermath. Which um, is fine. Because- like I don't know; it's just a choice. But yeah. I think we often see the aftermath more right. clearly than we see that the violence, the violence action. Yeah. Right. yeah. And that might yeah. be because it's easier to draw to or something. Yeah, yeah, it's just easier to depict it. Mm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, like, you see on page 40, just for example, just sort of going back, you see um, uh, people being attacked, and he uses, you know, like the whap and the thud and the, mm. the kind of, yeah, crack, and then that kind of background where you feel like the energy is sort of pulsing out of someone's head because they're being mm. punched or something. Um I think it's just kind of hard to depict like this kind of brutal violence of someone being beaten when you don't have moving images. Mm. And I so think to try- so. Yeah, I've go got ahead. a theory. Let me let me pacify you guys. I I feel like there's a way in which the violence, the depiction of violence, kind of increases as it goes on. Not just because the historical, right, like that the historical violence is increasing, but there's a way that it changes on the page. Hmm. So it's a theory. So let, um, the thing that I'm looking at is on page 136 and 137 when they turn the fire hoses on the kids, mm-hmm. and like this is water, but. Um, uh, you know, like, so there's a way in which it could have been a really, uh, what's the word I want? Like, like, how do you, how do you get across the like evil violence of that moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I feel like the, the choice he made was to basically show how the water erases the children's bodies completely, right? Like you can't actually see them in the panels. Um, you, you only know they're there because they were there a moment before. And instead you see, you know, like I, I love the way you talked, uh, Todd, about like the kind of iconography of um, evil in comic books because you get the blank um, uh, uh, glasses with the reflection of the sound of the water on the glasses. Yeah, and obviously the next page is the images of the dog, um, dogs. And I couldn't help think of like the dogs that were unleashed on like the Standing Rock protesters, right, when that mm-hmm. happened and kind of thinking about 
like watching like the video footage of that because it was like I think democracy now is down there and just kind of thinking about how some of these tactics really remain the same right in terms of yeah and isn't this one of the examples of and he calls attention to this a few times where it's the fact that this was video you know this was on film and that people Mm -hmm. saw it Mm -hmm. and that that helped to really make the um make the movement real the brutality of the response to um people who were you know protesting nonviolently made it really real for people yeah Yeah, and and actually as you were kind of telling us of your theory adriana that's what i was thinking too like wondering if connect connected to your theory that the the way the violence is rendered um you know, throughout the text is a mirror of the way the media is is able to report mm. the violence. Because oh, we, when we get to 1965 and Bloody Sunday, right? What Lewis says is that you know they're, they 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 um, play on air 15 minutes of yeah the the pounding the violence that happens. Right. There. I wonder if that is kind of being mirrored in. Yeah, and I was also thinking. Oh. No Sorry, problem. I was also thinking about, was it Fanny Lou Hamer's uh, account that actually gets cut off, right? Like, is it LBJ who's like, we need to get in there, we need to get in there, we need to cut her off, right? So that was interesting to me because I was actually like a narrative of the violence and not the violence itself. But yeah. even that, right, was seen as like too powerful and like too much and they had to like cut it off. Um, so I don't know if you want to jump in here, but I guess I wanted to ask a broader question about, I'm curious about... So, right, like this was the 60s and that was like a big part of like the messaging was to like get it out more publicly. But I'm curious about in the age of like social media where we have cell phone footage of the brutality against black bodies, like more just like everywhere. I'm just curious about how we're thinking differently about it or like what's, you know, there's been kind of these different arguments, right, about like putting those images like on media and like watching it or not watching it. But more broadly, like, does it have the effect that like maybe he did in the 60s? Yeah, I mean, it's a super complicated question, but I mean, I think, you know, George Floyd is a really great example of how, you know, video of an incident moved people in ways that, it's not like there hasn't been Black people killed by the police, you know, in the last few years. It's basically when people see the video and it becomes real to them. I mean, it's, uh, Stuart Hall has this idea of like, um, that representation is constitutive of the of an event. I'm sorry, I bring some academic stuff in here, but like this Should idea that... Should we break that, down what constitutive of an event means? Well, that it actually constructs it, right? So that people who haven't, who are witnessing something through some kind of re- representation of it, that actually becomes the event for them. Mm. And so if you didn't see it, it's almost like it didn't happen, right? It's not almost mm. like it, it basically didn't happen. Like these kinds of sort of systems of signification, whether video is one of the most visceral ones, constructs these um, incidents for us. And so most people, when they talk about George Floyd, and if you guys remember, like at the time, the um, uh, polls and things like that were saying that many white people, many Republicans, like people who you you wouldn't think would be so um, upset about it, were upset about it because they'd seen it and they saw a guy kneel on someone's neck for nine minutes and look straight into the camera and say, and with the look like, what are you going to do about it? And that really um, moved people and constructed that in a, in a pretty much like unambiguous way, right? Like you couldn't really argue like, no, he's not doing that the same way. Now when, when you have a uh, 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 Jacob, uh, Jacob Blake, yeah, Jacob Blake's in- incident. Now people are like, well, maybe he was going for a gun or maybe this, maybe that. 
it's it's a little bit more ambiguous and it allows more interpretation and people now arguing about it and things they didn't do that when it came to george floyd you know so i think these representations are super important and i think that's what what john lewis is saying here like when you saw something that you couldn't deny no one could deny that you know fire hosing little kids is bad like you can't say like well but the kids were really like agitating or <laughs> you know what i'm saying so it's the it, it, if we believe that that rep representation of what's happening is it feels like it's true it feels like it's not something you can argue about what's going on in it the interpretation is like you know sort of generally unimpeachable then people are moved by it and that tends to sort of bring people together more and and i had i was i'm thinking of um a couple of points and maybe it only end up being one point but really wanting to think about civil rights after this use of um kind of this knowledge about the media as, you know as strategic right and so purposefully um marching peacefully um confronting and in some in some instances provoking white supremacists because they know that there's going to be this huge response is going to be unequal to the peacefulness that they are displaying and using that to their, their advantage mm -hmm. versus kind of a video of a black person being you know murdered indiscriminately and then that being that galvanizing some group of white people right and i think there there are responses that happens in both of those kind of viewings but not wanting to kind of take away the strategy that civil rights activists saw in provoking a type of negative response from white supremacists because they knew that the media would be there and then the media would then publicize that versus i think what we have happening now um i think it's kind of two different things but that they have reactions and responses. Yeah, like visibility I, as a strategy versus like visibility that just led to a response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if I, I can add to that, it's, an, it's not just visibility as a strategy, but um, oh, I, there, there was an acceptance and an understanding that um, harm to your body, that your body's vulnerability was part of the strategy. Right. Um, right. I was really struck by how um, clear and patent that was in the graphic novels, yeah. right? The talking about writing the wills before going on the freedom rides like at every at every moment there were discussions about um if you if you agree with this uh, strategy of nonviolence, what you're also agreeing to right is that you might die for this cause right. yeah and That's if you're right. not willing to die don't get in the line with us right exactly yeah. exactly and so there's this knowledge that you know i am a, i'm participating in this movement in this in this direct action and i could die versus a police officer shooting me on a random right. police stop and i and That's i and i think that you know we know that those are differences but i just don't want i don't want to i really don't want well, to that out. i totally yeah. agree with what you're saying i think though that both uncover something that usually remains either either people ignore it or in mm -hmm. the case of what's happening more recently people think it doesn't exist because they haven't seen it right so if you're if you're if you're black and you actually just said usually if you're black like you have had some sort of incident with the police or you you know people who have and so the idea of police brutality is a very real thing to you um and so if there are people who have never seen this who've always thought of the police as being like their helpers and like they're there for me right, right? and it's uh it's a whole different sort of um, understanding of the world. And 
when they see that video, something is revealed to them that they didn't see before. The yeah. same way people in the North were sort of denying that these things were happening in the South is not that bad. Of course, people in the yeah. South were sort of making that argument. It's not that bad yeah. down here. We know how to take care of our Negroes, that sort of thing. Yeah. And they saw these videos and they're like, oh, like this yeah. is really happening, right? Which I think is like a similar to the fact that it, like the folks, for, like the white students from the North who went down to the South, right? So yeah. uh, Doug McAdam has this really great book called Freedom Summer, right? Where he basically like, you'll like this as a historian, uh, Crystal. He literally just like came across this like random archive of like all the folks who had applied to go to Freedom Summer and who got accepted. And he had sort of in the files, both folks who like got accepted and went and both who folks who got accepted and didn't go. And he like tracked them down. So he kind of does this like comparative study of like the effect of participating in Freedom Summer of those two groups. But one of the things that he talks about is that just like the you know folks from the North going down there and like actually seeing and experiencing what was happening had this like profound effect on right like how they understood what was happening um one of the things that i noticed speaking about this kind of uh discussion of the police as uh you know in, in these uh now contemporary situations where we see police brutality what i think is fascinating uh and it's this other disconnect for me between using the inauguration as the framing mm -hmm. so one thing that the history makes clear right like all of this discussion um the, the stories of the civil rights and, and the different actions that were taken is the police are part of this brutal state system it, I mean, like you can't separate the police actions or the sheriff's actions from the actions of the governors and of the, like this whole white supremacist society, right? And so then the inauguration is fascinating because they actually have several panels where you see the police standing there, right? Like guarding the president, um, you know, like being there as John Lewis makes his way to, um, uh, you know, to the dais or whatever it's called. And like, actually, it struck me right away, like how bizarre it was to have this kind of like knowledge and understanding of the police as an arm of, um, of the state, right? Um, and then to, you know, I think that's where the inauguration as a frame really falls down for me because it suggests that the state um, has completely changed, right? That this, we no longer need to be aware, aware or wary of this arm of the state. Was just one I think it's like writing. complicated. Oh, sorry. But oh, I think no, it's like complicated in terms of like who the, like, because they are calling on federal troops in the book to protect them from the local police and the sheriff. So like, I think it's like an interesting, complicated story of like, the you know sort of the state mechanisms of violence sometimes being called upon by the civil rights movement to like protect them and i was thinking about all those you know the kids who went to like central um central high right is that the place like in uh, little rock kansas little right rock, and like yeah. literally like these kids like being escorted by like federal troops so i'm just curious about like how, yeah, how but, what do we think about that but, but what i love about like at least the story and like crystal's gonna be like look you should have known <laughs> but like what i loved about the the history that john lewis has done is like those claims to the to the federal government oh my god did they have to work to get responses mm -hmm. like they wrote letters yeah. they sent telegrams like there were they were like we are on the line like we are getting killed and it it, it took forever like i was so pissed off by the time when when civil rights activists and when local movements got federal help it was all politicized like okay we'll send these troops down if you get your people to do xyz or if you mm -hmm. if you stop protesting and instead do voter education you know it was mm -hmm. for these that they were constantly having to negotiate with um you know with with 
federal officials, be they, um, you know, the president himself or, you know, someone else. So. And Todd, I totally cut you off earlier. So sorry. No, I actually don't remember what I was going to say, but I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to throw something else in there. And this is going back a couple of minutes, but I just, um, I think uh, one thing that the, the, this, these books really do really well for me that I like and I, I really am appreciative of is like to bring all these folks we were talking before about how many folks are involved. Number one, um, I, you, I know you can't really do this, but to sort of, sh to at least do a gesture towards how much organizing takes place is necessary yeah. in order for any of this stuff to happen. Yep. Like maybe my favorite thing is the whole thing around the March on Washington mm -hmm. and how much love he gives to Bayard Rustin who organizes mm -hmm. that, right? Like who does all the, you know, is in charge of all the groundwork yeah. from the beginning to like not leaving any trash on the mall whenever they're done. Right. Yep. And, um, and, and a Philip Randolph, you know, hugs him and says, thank you. Right. Like he won't even, he won't do it without Bayard Rustin. Right. Cause they don't want Bayard Rustin to be in charge of it because he's gay and everything. Um, so that, and then the other thing, is the how committed to and how powerful nonviolent direct action is, especially in the minds of the people who practice it. And I kind of like, um, you know, sort of having studied as a lit person, having studied the black arts movement and sort of like really gotten into that sort of much more politically radical kind of literature and poetry where they're actually dissing, you know, you know, they call it like chicken, chicken scratching, you know, um, uh, uh, civil rights leaders or whatever. I kind of sort of got into thinking like, you know, nonviolent action is kind of like, no, I would never have done that. I would have been, you know, on the side of, of Malcolm X and um, the Black Panthers or whatever, right? It, but it really made me think about how much nonviolent action is, is a radical, like such a radical um, approach to, um, to, to uh, civil rights. Like just what you were saying, Adriana, like you literally have to say, okay, I'm going to die. I'm going to go out in this march. And if they kill me, that's what's going to happen. My body will be a sacrifice for the movement. Like there's a way in which that's even more radical than if you pull a gun on me, I pull a gun on you. <laughs> like I'm going to just mow yeah. down. And so I think, it, you know, I have to really give some respect to the degree to which they were committed to this and they held to it as, as, consistently as they did i mean there's not yeah. very many examples of like this is a peaceful march and it turned into a uh, actually a fight you know memphis maybe and a couple i mean there was like so much emphasis on like discipline right which i thought was right. like, really interesting but i think it's like it wasn't just the leaders right like i think what always impresses me and i'm like always inspired it was just like everyday people right right who were like standing in those lines who were like having that violence like inflicted on them so it was like yes it was the leaders and it was like that but it was just like hundreds of thousands of people right, right. and i'm just like, and like what danger, am i doing with my life right yeah. <laughs> like i don't the, know the danger of death is real i mean i think yeah. again it, it, yeah. you get that emphasized here the danger yeah. of death is real every sort of major figure who was killed in the movement is highlighted in in these well in the time frame that we're looking at and that's important right and yeah. and there are many more who right. were not named, who were yeah. killed and nobody knows, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, he has those like two names at the end, right? Like about talking about, um, so after the civil rights, was that what it was? Um, there's like a woman who was killed, he mentions and- um, yeah, Oh, the woman in the car after the- Yeah, so it's, uh, sorry, last to, book. Yeah, after the March to Birmingham. Or, yes, yes, uh, Montgomery, yes. I mean. 
Yes, right. So I'm sure that, I'm sure there were like so many more as well, but well, so it wasn't so, just like the high profile people. Right. No, and, and one that struck me actually was um, when the three um, Mickey, Andy and James yeah. go missing and they, you know, eventually have the FBI and everybody searching down there um, to try and find their bodies. And they do find, um, I can't remember who finds the body in a lake, and it's not one of them. They, they look at the body and they're like, right. oh, this person died a while ago, but it's a core worker. And, I, and they never get named. Right. And I thought that was actually really haunting and, and an interesting choice to kind of um, get at the, I, I don't know, like what, how even to talk about it, but just the risk to their lives, right? So here's an anonymous core worker who you know, died in the service, but, um, you know, somehow doesn't even get the the name or the memory here in the book. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and just think about, I every time I go down, like when I uh, go down with students down to the South, like, and we're out in some rural county, you know, um, I think like, okay, there were probably, you know, like maybe five or 10, you know, SNCC organizers who were like living in a house out here somewhere who were going around talking to black farmers, you know, uh, sharecroppers and mm-hmm. like how dangerous was that? And there is that one scene where like a, yeah. they mm-hmm. go onto a plantation and the yeah. plantation owner's like, uh, you better get the what hell are you out doing of here. here? Yeah. 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 And yeah. you know that that was sort of like a daily occurrence and right. for yeah. a, 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 a black organizer to disappear, nothing yeah. down there. Doesn't right. exactly. nothing. It registers nothing. Um, right. Yeah. And, and the speaking oh. of, the, of the not only the black organizers who disappear, but just the everyday black people who may have tried to register yep. their vote prior to, you know, there being a massive voter registration drive or, you know, the black person who got too, quote unquote, big for their britches, right? It wasn't just uh, civil rights organizers who were found when they were scouring for civil rights organizers in those lakes yeah. and rivers and, you know, backcountry. Orders, it was everyday black, local black people who were being found who went missing you know yeah so. um and actually that's a good place because i was hoping that crystal could have the last word because i actually crystal i feel like what i so appreciate about your work is that you're sort of taking a look at civil rights in a way that's like really different in some ways than right i think kind of the visible narrative that we know and the visible narrative that kind of comes up here so i was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about like your work and maybe we could end with that because i think it also gets at this like everyday resistance of black folks and especially black women which i think is so important because there's just like a gesture to like gender here where they were like oh they were complaining about how women were treated but obviously it's like kind of kind of male focused so yeah i mean one of the things that you know i both appreciate and um have questions about you know with this book is kind of you know the master narrative that it continues to tell about the civil rights movement as it being a southern movement as it being a movement dominated um by men in the front at the forefront and where women are, they're um, kind of in these background roles, or we just get one woman like Diane Nash, um, who deserves to have so many books and celebrations and and, uh, commendations for what she did um, for the civil rights movement. And so what my work does is it kind of asks us to think about, number one, you know, where the movement is happening, you know, during these same years outside of the South. Um, And of course, this is about John Lewis, um, but struggles for freedom were happening, you know, everywhere in this nation during uh, this period. And more and more historians are writing about that. Um, but then also kind of thinking about kind of the role of women and, and not only the role of women, but um, the ways in which gender 
impacted who could and could not do what or what they could and could not do. Um, and so just thinking about the gender dynamics of civil rights movement organizing and how we define leadership and what we even consider activism. And so my work kind of um, explodes all of those questions to look at everyday, you know, Black working women in the urban Midwest. And I'm trying to kind of make this point that, again, Black working women were engaging in various forms of activism um, to change their lived circumstances in the urban Midwest. And we need to look at their thoughts and their actions to be able to understand the civil rights movement more fully. Um, and so when I think about, you know, this book, you know, knowing that it's it's about John Lewis's life, I think about, you know, where, where are more of the women and where do we see more of their influence on um, kind of what's going on in the civil rights movement? Um, so. Cool, thank you. I just always think about that. And I lied. I guess um, maybe we could end with people did want to kind of maybe think about audience because we talked a little bit about, right, all of the things we've been talking about, right, in terms of like it being like an intro to like what was happening, but maybe also the choices that they've made. So I'm curious about, yeah, who folks thought the audience for this book was. Um, so I would I would say this. We have one thing we want to guard against is, you know, we it's 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 a tendency to think because it's a, a comic, essentially, that it's for younger readers. And I think that it's not. I mean, there there are lots of, um, of gra- I mean, that's why we have the term graphic novel, right? Instead of comics that people use that because um, to signify that it's not just for younger readers and there are lots of graphic novels that take on really adult subjects and, um, and deal with the sort of difficult things. And so I, I think you, this is a set of books that's for everyone although it, it very much is for maybe for, it, it, it does sort of aim at people who maybe have less um, knowledge of the civil rights movement. And I think we have to also remember that it's essentially a, a, um, a narrative of a person's life, like a personal right. narrative of a person's life. Right. Um, so there's that too. But yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think this is for everyone is for black people, it's for white people, it's for older people, it's for younger people. And I think everybody's gonna have a, a specific response to it. Todd, you didn't even mention Latinx people. And Indians, I'm just I'm saying. Sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> Crystal? <laughs> Question. Um, in terms of the genre graphic novel, what happens when the novel part is actually history? Like, is it graphic history book? I mean, yeah, it's graphic history, right? Like, I'm, oh, yeah, that's I'm using the wrong term, but graphic memoir, maybe. Yeah, like, they're, well, they're, they turned the, you guys remember the 9/11 report? They did it. There's a graphic graphic True. version of that, and like, so. Wait, I mean, Arch Spiegelman's mouse. I mouse mean, that's is a classic, probably. Yeah, that's uh, a great example. And I'm like blanking on the Iranian woman who did. Uh, per, oh, per, per Persephone. Pop. Persephone. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember her name. Yeah. Uh, there's blankets, there's like uh, fun house or fun home. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think what, you know, so March in that sense doesn't take as many liberties with, you know, taking the history and, uh, you know, using images to, to do something like, I don't know, uh, radical to help you understand what was going on. <laughs> Um, which well, is interesting. Do you think that, I mean, maybe, I mean, nowhere on this book does it say this is a history book, hmm. but maybe, I mean, I wonder if there's like, people are going to take this for history. Yeah. People, right. this, people are going to read this and be like, this is the story of the civil rights movement. And maybe that's what Crystal's sort of like objecting to because it is like one the story. History. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. This is John Lewis's story. Mm-hmm. And even John right. Lewis's story has filtered through the guy who, you know, Ant- 
Andrew, Andrew Ape helped him write it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also the uh, the artist, you know. So yeah. this is one sort of look at this, and it's not yeah. the definitive one. That's right. That's right. And and one trivial thing, kind of, I was just thinking about kind of people going, you know, looking at this and saying this is history. You know, Nate Powell's rendering of Aretha Franklin's inauguration hat is pretty spot on. You know. I love that. And I think that's a, <laughs> that's a good rendering of that. <laughs> that at least is totally accurate. And I think that is a great place to end. <laughs> and also rest in peace, Aretha Franklin. Oh, All right. Uh, so we're going to go around and do a quick round of what we're reading, watching, listening, eating, whatever. So Adriana, <laughs> do you want to start us off? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because y'all can help me. So, um, so my son a couple of weeks ago said, hey, Comixology is doing like you can download all the Black Panther comics for free. You should do it. And I'm like, yeah, I will do that. So now I've got 27 uh, Black Panther comics, Tanahasi <laughs> Coates, um, and I don't know where to start. Like, which is the first one? Like, who can tell? I don't know. So if anyone out there wants to help me figure out like where I should start, you know, like... And how to read on an iPad, um, all your, <laughs> all your help, help. is required. <laughs> okay, Boomer, thank you. Uh, Todd. Oh, Generation <laughs> X. Generation X, you We're not that take old. that back. <laughs> it's an attitude, not an age, people. <laughs> uh, okay, so I am reading um, Claudia Rankin's new book, Just Us, An American Ooh. Conversation, which just came out, and it is very much in the sort of style of her previous books, especially Citizen. So it's like uh, okay. poetry and some lots of images, um, lots of essays, you know, lots of like stuff from, there's actually like images of the pages from, from Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, like in the middle of it, the, the sections that speaks uh, directly about the nature and intelligence of black people and things like that, you know? So, and then this really, very appointed commentary on the image and stuff like that. So um, it's really big. It's like maybe three, uh, yeah, oh, 300 wow. pages or something like that. Oh, I'm showing it. Well, I'm showing it to it. the rest of them. Yeah. You all can't yeah. see it. But yeah, so it's uh, it's 300 pages and oh, it's wow. really heavy. And this is uh, Gray Wolf Press, local press. Keep, nice. keep doing it, Gray Wolf. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to uh, get into this. Of course, we are in the semester, so I'll probably finish it in March. thanks Todd (laughs) Crystal so um, I'm kind of in between books right now but the book that I want to um, get soon and start reading is Vanguard by Martha Jones Mm. and it's um, kind of a history of um, kind of black women's struggles for voting and political rights um, in the U.S. but then I also I'm a little bit behind the curve here I just recently bought some active yeast and I think I want to try to make some bread so back to that you, you can actually get yeast now Right, right. Wait, wait, wait is like this month. different than the sourdough thing? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes. But there I was a know, point. I'm, go ahead. No, I mean there was like a there was like a couple months where you could not buy oh, yeast. Okay. You couldn't find exactly. it anyway. Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, and part of the thing about sourdough is you don't need yeast. Like you basically uh, okay, like okay, okay. You, you have I to let the thing. flour and the water sit and they sit for a while and they start to ferment and that's creates okay. the sourdough starter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular kind of bread you're gonna try making, Crystal? Well, so in Nigerian culture, there are these little donuts similar to beignets called puff puff. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to try to make puff puff, which are just basically like little sweetened fried donuts. But oh. they were. Um, why sounds don't you amazing. Live close by yeah, I know. Seriously. I was just thinking the same thing. Can you ship why them? You have to move? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, my book, I read it a couple of weeks ago. It's called A Burning by Mega Majumdar. I hope I'm saying that name right. So it's kind of these three characters are set in contemporary India and it kind of touches on like mob violence, state violence, and kind of like the, I don't know, like the everyday and like spectacular ways in which like people concede to power in order to like get personal gain. And it's like a really like quick read. I like read it over a weekend, but it's just, um, and Tommy Orange like says this on the back of the book. It's like quietly beautiful and devastating. And it really is like, there's this like three page chapter in the middle of the book, basically where like a mob, a Hindu mob like kills a um, Muslim family, but it's like, but it starts with this, like they're going into the house and they like remember that he's a neighbor and like they borrowed things from him but then it just like escalates into this violence and it lo- it's just so it's really good but also just like really chilling right just the like sort of what's happening in uh, contemporary india but I definitely recommend it so uh that's mine oh and also just a re-shout out just because there's like so many songs in here kind of from the civil rights movement but crystal had sort of shouted this out maybe a couple of years ago when it came out, but basically the BYP 100s, the Black Joy Experience album, y'all should listen to it. It's amazing. And we might play some of it at the end of this show. All right. So um, our next book is going to be Blanche on the Lamb, Barbara Neely. Uh, basically, Todd just kept talking about it. So we're all like, fine, let's read it. No, just kidding. It's also, You're welcome, <laughs> we're, ex- <America. laughs> we're excited because it's our first like mystery novel that I think we read on the, um, on the show. So it'll be fun to do that. And as always, you know, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, all the places you can find podcasts. Uh, please, keeping re- please keep wearing those masks, washing those hands, keeping those six feet away. And thank you for listening, and we hope that you all are. Thanks for safe. supporting us, 25. Woo! Woo! Here's to 25 more. <laughs> we're keep going. We don't care. <laughs> we do care. We care listen a lot Listen or about don't books. listen. We're going to keep making these. So love us, hate us, we'll be here. We'll just be here talking with each other because that's basically no what place. it's about. Yeah. <laughs> Keep on moving. Right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. What side are you on, my people? What side are you on? We on the freedom side. What side are you on, my people? What side are you on? We on the freedom side. Ella Baker, we taught us how to fight. Say what? So we gon' fight all day and night until we get it right. What side are you on, my people? What side are you on? We on the freedom side. What side are you on, my people? What side are you on? We on the freedom side. Marsha P. Johnson was hey. a real fighter and she taught us how to fight. Say what? So we gon' fight all day and night until we get it right. You've just been listening to the 25th episode of The Drip recorded remotely from St. Paul, Minneapolis and Northfield, Minnesota and Washington, D.C. The show is written, produced and directed by Anita Chikator, Adriana Estel, Crystal Moten and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Please check out the special music in the episode which came from the famous album Free to Be You and Me and the BYP 100 album The Black Joy Experience. We'll be back in about a month with an episode on the late Barbara Neely's classic novel, Blanche on the Lamb. And until then, please, please, please be safe and take care of each other. Until we get it right. What side are you on, my